Try to picture me in a cobalt blue collared shirt with yellow lettering, standing behind a tall counter with a welcome smile, scanning plastic membership cards and repeating the same six words again and again and again. Remember to be kind and rewind. Yes, before I was a minister, I was a manager at a blockbuster video store in Cary, North Carolina. I know it's hard for some of you to picture me in that setting, but imagine with me, I bet some of you right now can smell the popcorn as you remember with deep nostalgia that great cultural phenomenon of going to the video store on a Friday or Saturday night to pick out a movie. It was an incredible experience and one that my daughter will never have because her entire life has been lived in the era of streaming. My, how things have changed so quickly. While I was working at Blockbuster Video, a very interesting thing occurred. A little company started a subscription-based DVD mailing service. And my boss, Mike, at the time, thought this was the stupidest thing. He regularly made fun of this company and said it would never catch on. He believed that Blockbuster, the behemoth that it was, would crush them into the ground and that this new company would be out of business in a few years. He was not alone in thinking this. All of Blockbuster's executives felt the exact same way. In fact, when the CEO of this little DVD company approached Blockbuster to offer to partner together, he was laughed out of their office. That CEO was Reed Hastings. And that little DVD company that he created was called Netflix, the first video streaming service. And in one year, they grew their revenue by $11 billion and their subscribers by $100 million and they put Blockbuster out of business in three years. No more getting in the car, driving to the store, hoping there's a copy of that movie that you want to watch. Now, every movie ever made is at your fingertips in the comfort of your own home. What companies like Blockbuster and Kodak and Blackberry, do you remember them? They show us that when we're faced with change, crisis, opportunity, new ideas, new technology, in the midst of this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world that we live in, the most dangerous thing we can do is nothing. I realize this is a counterintuitive claim. Caution suggests that if we do nothing, we can avoid danger and risk. Many believe that doing nothing is the safest and most prudent option. But this way of thinking imagines that we are outside of time, outside of history, immune to the permanent change that is always occurring, the evolution that is always taking place. It's to live in blind denial of the reality that there is always risk, danger, and cost to doing nothing. 
Sometimes we hope that by doing nothing, we won't be the one culpable for the losses. We won't be the one responsible for the bad things that happen. That if we don't do anything, we're not responsible for what occurs. But this, of course, is wrong, isn't it? If a child we're caring for is running into oncoming traffic and we do nothing, we're still responsible for what happens to that child. We call that negligence. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 is a parable about negligence. The risk, the cost, the peril, the danger of doing nothing. And I find it necessary to tell you this at the start of a sermon and to approach this parable from that perspective because it is both one of the most popular and one of the most wildly misinterpreted texts in the entire Bible. In fact, scheduling this text during the season of stewardship was rather common and basic thing for me to do. More stewardship sermons have been preached on this text than any other in American history, which means there are countless ways that we can go wrong this morning and miss the meaning of this story. So I've developed five rules. These are five rules for myself, but you're happy to use them. Five rules that I use when interpreting this parable. Number one, don't make it about eternal judgment in the afterlife and hell. That's just a general good rule for all things in the Bible, but this passage especially. Number two, don't make God or Jesus into the property owner. I don't know if either of them owned private property, but that's not the point of this parable. Don't make, number three, don't make it into an endorsement of capitalism or investment banking. I'll get back to that later. Number four, don't make it into a prosperity gospel of maximizing wealth. Very easy to do with this story. And number five, don't make it about productivity. As Americans, the reason I have these five rules is that as Americans, we're immersed in a capitalist society and tend to read everything in the Bible, and especially this parable, the parable of the talents, through the lens of our current economic system. In fact, one scholar calls this parable every capitalist's favorite story. However, regardless of our economic proclivities, we cannot fail to notice that popular interpretations of this parable are also responsible for infecting us with the horrifying ideology that the poor are wicked and lazy. Or worse, that people are poor because they're lazy. Whenever Jesus' words are used to shame the poor, we need to take the time to remove our American capitalist lenses so that we can read the gospel more accurately because Jesus loved the poor and never shamed them. And bad interpretations of the Bible are incredibly dangerous. Just ask any person of color or LGBTQ person. One poor campesino in Nicaragua named Oscar once told his priest, Ernesto Cardinal, if somebody who's already interested in money reads this gospel in their own way, these words are going to make them worse than they were before. That's why the five rules are necessary for this parable. They're intended to prevent us from projecting our cultural proclivities onto the text and becoming worse people than we were 
before we read it this morning. At first glance, the parable of the talents doesn't seem commensurate with Jesus' other teachings on money, which is why some scholars claim that Jesus didn't actually say it, and others believe that the moral of the story is to be like the third servant and subvert the master's economic system of exploitation by doing nothing. But I believe even that, as much as I like that idea, even that stretches the parable a little too far. We must look more carefully. The relationships in this story are less like master-slave and more like a boss and three managers. And notice the boss did not actually praise the first two managers for making good investments. That's something we often read into this text. There's no full-throated affirmation of investing money here. First, the implication is that the first two managers didn't invest at all. They made money some other way. Second, investing in the bank is described, at least in this parable, as the last resort. The words about investing are born of the boss's anger and frustration with the third manager. He was infuriated when he proclaimed that investing money in the bank was the second worst thing a person could do. The only thing worse than investing money in the bank was burying it in the ground, which means investing is only slightly better, according to this parable, than doing nothing. Please don't try that message at Bank of America or Wells Fargo tomorrow. It won't get you very far. It's important that the focus of the story is not on how much the managers were given or even how much they made, but what they did with it. This parable is a comparison between those who did something with what they were given and one who did nothing. You may have noticed that my title today comes from the famous Billy Preston song about the mathematics of love. Do you know the song? Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You gotta have something if you wanna be with me. That's gonna get in your head and it's gonna be with you. It's, it's one of those earworms. It's a simple and yet profound message. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You can't get something from nothing. Zero minus zero is zero. Nothing subtracted from nothing equals nothing. It's the basic mathematics of life that Preston is singing about. The song essentially says that if you want to be in a relationship with someone or something, you need to bring something to the table or you'll get nothing. It's easy for us to get into the habit of complaining about what we don't have, about not having enough things in our lives, about not having enough love or enough time or enough effort or enough money. But unless we do something, bring something, give something, we shouldn't be surprised if we're getting nothing. A more positive way to put this is we get out what we put into something, which is not just true of our relationship with other people, is it? This is true about our relationship with God and the church and the world. We can't get something from nothing because nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Unfortunately, a lot of us approach church as if we're trying to get something from nothing. 
We give nothing, we contribute nothing, or we offer very little, the minimal amount of our time, our talents, our treasure, and yet we expect the church to give us everything. Can you imagine if your child or your spouse or your friend said this to you? Every week on Sunday morning at 10 a.m., I'm going to need you to give me a full body massage. And I expect you to put everything you have into this massage and to give it to me willingly and cheerfully with a smile on your face, no questions asked. But I will be giving you nothing in return. Well, that's not true. If you really need it, and if you beg for it three times a year in the spring and the fall and again at Christmas, I'll give you a light pat on the back and say, attaboy, good job. No one would agree to those terms. Yet this is how many of us relate to the church. Not to mention God. One of the things I've learned over the years in my own therapy and in counseling countless couples is that unexpressed, unrealistic, or unmet expectations can be a big problem for relationships. But the death nail, the death nail for any relationship is entitlement. When we think we're entitled. The third manager in this parable believed that he was entitled to be afraid of his boss. Jesus gave us no indication of the boss's character at the beginning of the story. We're left in the dark. But the manager here presumed he knew who his boss was and how he'd act. He tried to justify his entitlement by saying, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed, and so I was afraid, and I went and I did the cautious thing. I hid your talent, your money in the ground. Here, have what is yours back. And it's unclear whether or not the third manager here actually believed the boss was a harsh man or if he was using this as an excuse to justify his behavior. Either way, the boss saw right through his excuses and said, if you really thought I was that harsh, reaping where I did not sow, gathering what I did not, why didn't you just invest the money if you were so afraid? And the boss's question reveals that the manager had engaged in willful inactivity, or at least that overwhelming fear caused the manager to do nothing. When it comes to money, fear is one of the most powerful emotions that drives our behavior. Fear of losing money, fear of losing security and peace of mind, the peace of mind that comes with having money. This fear can petrify us into inaction. Fear is what drives us to hide our money, hoard our money, bury our money, invest our money in ourselves in a bank that does nothing for the world except for us, instead of sharing it generously with others. But fear is a tricky emotion. Sometimes fear masquerades as a subtle anxiety about financial security or an abundance of caution about our future. We don't always experience our relationship to money as fear. Sometimes it just feels like good long-term planning, making a rainy day fund, putting a little extra away for retirement or investing in our children's future. 
These are all smart, good, rational things to do, but playing it safe can also be an excuse we make to ourselves to keep more than we need, to be less generous. And sometimes we can even become selfish or greedy without even knowing it. The third servant thought he could play it safe. He thought that if he did nothing, he couldn't make a mistake. He thought that if he didn't do anything, he couldn't go wrong. He thought that if he buried it in the ground, he wouldn't lose it. But the servant was severely mistaken. And that's the mistake we often make. Jesus says those who seek to save their lives will lose it. To those whom much is given, much is required. Fear is the opposite of faith. Faith requires action. To do nothing, to expect something from nothing, is the definition of being entitled and negligent with what we've been given. There's a quote that's often attributed to Edmund Burke that really belongs to the philosopher John Stuart Mill that said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to do nothing. I recently saw an interesting interview with Jim Carrey who talked about the dreams and the fears of his father, Percy. Some of you might know that Jim grew up as the youngest of four children in the suburbs of Toronto, Canada, and he described his father as one of the funniest men who ever lived. He said that his father had the spark of life in him and was an incredible saxophone player whose dream was to make it big as a musician. And the only way to do that at that time was to move to America. But his father was afraid. He had a wife, a large family to support. So he gave up his dream to be a saxophone musician and became an accountant. And then after years and years of working faithfully as an accountant, providing for his family at the age of 51, Percy was fired from his job as an accountant. And the Carey family became homeless. They lived in a van. Jim said losing his job killed his father's spirit, snuffed out the spark of life in him. Reflecting on what happened, Jim said, you know, it's one thing to fail trying to fulfill your dream. It's another thing to fail at something you didn't want to do in the first place. Seeing what that did to his father made Jim decide he would never, ever, no matter what happened, give up on his desire to become a comedian. It may not seem like he failed over and over again now that we see his popularity, but he was rejected from SNL three times, and he still never won an Oscar. But Jim kept on trying and trying, even after failing, and eventually found his way. He discovered one of life's most profound truths. Something is always better than nothing. And there's a story about Jim where he took the first check that he received, $5 million check, and instead of, wrote a check to himself and he put it in his father's casket when his father died. Even failure is better than nothing. Even failure is better than nothing because we learn from failure and we learn nothing from doing nothing. One of the things they don't teach you in seminary is that when you write a sermon, the first person you have to preach to is yourself. And this week as I was preparing this message, I was convicted about my own giving patterns, my own generosity. Like a lot of you probably, I filled out my 
pledge card this year, as I always do. And I wrote in the same amount that I pledged last year. And I feel like what I was giving is pretty significant. I felt pretty good about myself, you know, handed it in to Leanne, walked back to my office, felt kind of self-righteous a little bit. Then I started studying this parable this week. And I realized what I was doing was playing it safe, just like the negligent manager. Pledging the same amount for next year as I pledged this year is not giving the same amount of money. That's not how money works in America. There's this thing called inflation. Some of you might have heard about it. It goes up every year. Some years it goes up a whole lot. This year it was 3.7%. Last year it was 8%. And I realized that I was fooling myself into thinking that giving the same amount of money each year is a praiseworthy activity. I should feel good about myself. In reality, giving the same amount of money this year as I gave last year isn't even keeping the status quo. It's giving less money. And if I do that every year, year over year, then I'll be giving less money every single year. I would, I would feel, I would be tricking myself into feeling that I was doing something good, but in reality I would be giving less and less and less and being less and less generous. One of my favorite quotes from Benjamin Franklin is, the problem with doing nothing is you never know when you're finished. Right? So I brought the pledge card today that I wrote at the beginning of the campaign that has the same pledge on it that it did last year. Here's a new pledge card. This one has a 20% increase on it to make up for a few years of not increasing my pledge, to make up for a few years of stagnation in my giving, a few years of playing it safe, a few years of doing nothing. If you think this is a charade, go ahead and ask Leanne. She has no reason to lie to you. She's going off with the Presbyterians now. I am increasing my pledge because I believe in this church. I trust its leadership. I am 100% sold on the direction we're going. I am fully invested in our mission of inclusivity, community, spirituality, and justice. I am all in on our vision of becoming the first truly interracial church in the history of Myers Park. And if you're with me, I invite you to consider or reconsider what you're giving. And if you can move one mile further on that road toward generosity, I invite you to spiritually reflect on what generosity really means to you. Reflect on this scripture. Reflect, are you growing in generosity? What is God calling you truly to give? Maybe you've already made a pledge and it looks a lot like the one that I made, same as it was last year. If so, I invite you to rip it up and make a new one. You are free to do so. And if you do, I hope it gives you as much joy as it just gave me to do that. That was a lot of fun. And that's the hidden message in this story. You may have missed it. 
The managers who did something with what they were given found joy. That's because there is joy that comes with doing something. Joy that comes with giving. Joy that comes with being generous. That's why people always say it's better to give than to receive because it leads to true joy. And there's nothing in our lives or our church or our world needs more right now than joy. And joy is always born from thanksgiving, from the gratitude that we exude for the gifts and the blessings that we already have because gratitude knows that all we have is not ours to begin with. We are simply the stewards of what we've been given. And as human beings and people of faith, we're called to share what we have with others and to make the church and the world a better place to build beloved community. And then when we share what we have with others, joy explodes around us. Doing something, giving something, sharing something brings joy into our lives and into the lives of the people we love and into the communities that we serve and care about and into the troubled world where we are residing right now. Giving is a statement about who we are, what matters to us, what our values are, who we want to be in this world. So we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be blockbuster people in a Netflix age? Are we going to be a blockbuster church in a Netflix age? Or will we take action? Are we going to be like the negligent manager? Or are we going to do something with what we've been giving? Are we going to continue to be comfortable and content with doing nothing in a time that demands everything from us? Or will we try something? Are we going to keep on trying to get something out of nothing? from our relationship with other people, with God, with the church? Are we going to do something? We are called to give graciously, to go the next mile, to move forward on the journey of generosity. Trying to get something out of nothing is pointless. It never works because nothing from nothing leaves nothing. And you've got to have something if you want the joy of community. Amen.